of having success and growing your channel. If you do just want to be the next PewDiePie. You've been in the YouTube space for a long time. I, I believe it was about a decade. Is that right? Uh, actually, 17 years. I, I signed 17 up. 17 years. April 2006. I actually have like, I don't know the exact numbers, but like one of the first like 10,000 YouTube accounts or something like that. That's unbelievable and unbelievable stamina. We're going to get into some secrets for, for keeping it going this long. And I know there's some, uh, some backstory and some mixed feelings there, but what was YouTube like back in 2006, 2007, when nobody was on there and nobody was creating content? What was that like? Well, the, the interface was pretty janky. It was uh, definitely an early 2000s website. And before they had trending, they had like just top lists in each category. The funny thing was, I actually had success on the platform back then for something completely unrelated. Back in high school, I was really into like parkour and free running and gymnastics. So this t-shirt company uh, offered to give me free t-shirts if I make them a video. I was like, free t-shirts in high school. Free t-shirts is awesome. <laughs> I said yes. And then we we're like, what, what video should we make? So we made a backflip tutorial. And somehow that backflip tutorial, it's still on YouTube, uh, became the number one backflip tutorial on the internet for like a good five years or so. It got millions of views back then. It was pretty crazy. And it was my first kind of taste of, I guess, YouTube fame. I remember I went to a uh, parkour meetup in Toronto uh, a few months after I posted that and people recognized me as the backflip guy. And I was just like, whoa, this is kind of cool. But when I was on YouTube back then, I had no intentions of YouTube being a job. Like it wasn't even um, something you thought of back then because it was such a, a new platform. So quite literally, I was just making videos because I wanted to make videos and uh, YouTube was just the easiest way for me to share them with other with my friends and other people. So if I didn't know the story about the, the backflip and the parkour. That's so <laughs> interesting. And I remember you shocking me at the mastermind <laughs> trip doing some crazy gymnastics things that you never would have uh, guessed that an engineer would be flipping around <laughs> and doing. Uh, so I guess what inspired you back in the day? Not a lot of people were doing it. Now, obviously, it's the number one most desired job from young people and teenagers. It was not like that, I imagine, back in 2006, 2007. And you studied to be an engineer. So this is totally different out of the blue. What sparked that interest in creating content, making videos and being on YouTube? Yeah, so it's kind of interesting because in high school, I never actually took any of the comm tech classes or anything about like video, but I was always into technology. And when point and shoot cameras um, came out and had the ability to shoot video, suddenly it was like uh, an interest or a hobby of mine. And I started getting really into making videos again, just for fun. Um, but my true passion at school was engineering, which is where I continued, um, obviously, with my, my education, um, I, getting a bachelor's of engineering and whatnot. And then as that evolved, suddenly the YouTube kind of followed and I started making videos about the projects I was doing inside of engineering. And it kind of just grew from there. And I did it part time. And the, the real like the shift was um, just as I was graduating, actually. Um, summer of 2012, that's when YouTube actually opened up the partner program to pretty well anyone. Before that, there was a long list of criteria to be able to even be accepted for the partner program, but then they kind of opened up the floodgates. And that one, that was when I was like, that'd be pretty cool to make money off the internet. So I started making videos in earnest, pretty well weekly content. And I did that for a few years without really gaining much traction. I'm honestly not too sure what kept me going until 2014 when I had my first kind of like viral engineering project. 
Do you remember the movie Elysium with Matt Damon? Yes, great movie. Yeah, so I, I was inspired that by that movie because the exoskeleton they showed in that movie was relatively realistic. Maybe not the exposed uh, screws going through your skin to your bone, but the um, mechanics of that exoskeleton actually seemed uh, like feasible. Unlike, say, Iron Man's first suit, which was just like crazy. So I decided to try and make a pneumatic based exoskeleton. And that was my first video that kind of like started to grow the channel and made me realize that there's this, this niche on the internet for making cool stuff because it does have a bit of a barrier to entry. Um, it's not as simple as say streaming or gaming or, or whatever. So as I was developing my engineering schools and skills and resources that enabled me to do more complicated projects that really carved out a niche for me. And that's when I came up with the, the concept of make it real. And that's what our main series on YouTube's called, where we try and take a fictional idea from comics, movies, or video games and make a real looking prototype. And I've, I've noticed the parallels with Marvel and Star Wars and all these things that people are so interested in that seem like science fiction. You take them and you turn them into real life. And I think it's yeah. brilliant. And like you said, the barrier to entry is so high. It's not a lot of engineers out there you know, like Hacksmith that can do what you do. So kudos. James, <laughs> tell me about your most popular video. What is that video about and why do you think it was so popular? So that's actually still one of my first truly viral projects. So after I quit my job to pursue YouTube full time, and I wasn't making nearly enough money off YouTube to even do that, I had about six months of savings to, to make it happen. And luckily within those six months, I came up with this project. And it was around the time when Civil War came out um, with Captain America. So I actually created Captain America's shield, but with an electromagnetic bracer on it. So I could actually attract the shield from short distances. And we made a build video and then a test video where I basically just dressed up like Captain America and smashed and defended a bunch of stuff using this cool shield I had made. And that video blew up our channel. We went from 100,000 subscribers to half a million subscribers in just one month. And that was kind of like the initial boost that got the channel really rolling. And we experienced pretty well exponential growth year after year for the four, first four years of the of doing it full time, which was really crazy. And that video is still number one on our channel with I think about 50 million views. So uh, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. And I saw that video and it is unbelievable for those listening and you haven't already seen seen it. It looks like science fiction. You're throwing the shield at him and he's catching it. You've seen this electromagnetic glove. Really incredible stuff. Uh, James, tell me a little bit about the timeline of growth of the channel. Obviously, you've been on it for 17 years. You say you went from 100,000 to half a million in one month. Has it been yeah. relatively exponential since then? Did it take a while for you to gain your first bulk of followers? Over the 17 years, describe to me your growth. Sure. Um, so let's say from 2006 to 2012, I was just uploading for the sake of uploading. I think I had a few thousand subscribers, all thanks to that backflip tutorial. Um, when I started making videos in earnest with the hope of becoming a YouTuber in 2012, from 2012 to 2014, um, might've gotten to like 10,000, 20,000 subscribers. I'm not too sure. And then it was that Elysium exoskeleton video that bumped me up to, I think like 50 or 60,000 subscribers. 
And then there's some steady growth from there to the Captain America Shield video because we, we cracked 100,000 just before it. And then, like I said, that video in one month, we added half a million subscribers. By the end of the year, we had a million. The next year, two million. The year after, four million. The year after, eight million. Year after, slowed down a little bit, only like 10 million. And then it went up to 12. And now we're at like almost 14 million now. So it has been a, a long, long grind, but the platform has also changed a lot in that time it very much is possible if you're making quality content to go from like zero subscribers to a hundred thousand subscribers with just one video, which is crazy. And that, that just wasn't a thing back then. So whether it's just, um, the algorithms matured a lot and we can, we can complain and blame the algorithm all we want, but it does actually work for, um, blowing up new channels occasionally. It just depends if your content is really quality or not. Such an interesting conversation because back in the day, there's much less competition, but also less users. The algorithm is less sophisticated versus now where you've got a lot more competition, but you've got everybody's on YouTube. Everybody goes to YouTube to consume knowledge, entertainment, and the algorithm is so sophisticated. Do you think it's easier to grow now or do you think it was easier to grow 17 years ago when you started? I, th I think it is easier to grow now. But that still comes with a caveat. You, you really do need unique original content. And even if you have that, it's not a guaranteed formula for success. Um, in my case, I attribute a lot of our channel's growth and success to the fact that we were doing Marvel projects as the MCU was becoming the biggest piece of IP in the world. Every movie release, I remember Infinity War and Endgame, our channel got tons and tons of views. So because of the MCU growing so much and us having videos in that kind of realm of that category, it really helped boost us up. Whereas um, the other engineer maker channels out there, basically my cohort that I started with, we are pretty well five times the size of any one of those channels. And in my opinion, it's because we really went, we focused in on doing make it real, doing stuff from the movies, being able to attach ourselves to big IP that's already being searched. Um, the SEO is great. And I attribute a lot of our success to that. You know, I've noticed a lot of popular YouTubers, famous YouTubers experiment like you, where you're posting backflip videos, you're posting just to post. And then it seems like you may have found a niche with that exoskeleton video that you were like, wow, this formula works. Let's repeat it. Let's lean into it. Did you find that to be accurate? Did you find a formula and do you pretty reliably stick to that formula and expect a certain amount of views and growth? Yeah, for the most part, some of our most successful videos have all been based around blockbuster movies and basically timing those, those videos with those movie releases. And that's really what, sorry, can you hear that? Yeah, I know you're in a herc right now. Hacksmith just, just one <laughs> Guys, no door, please, right now. I'm going to leave this part in. Somebody back there is engineering in <laughs> his engineering facility. That's awesome. I hear a buzz. Right, uh, sorry. No, it's okay. Um, they're, they're, they're hard at work building things. I love that. <laughs> where were we? Um, the formula. Uh, yeah, discovered really, really leaning into that formula. Yeah, leaning into those movies really, really helped, I think. Um, we had a recent really successful video. Um, we did a Kevlar bulletproof suit inspired by John Wick. 
And the video is actually sponsored by Lionsgate, which is really cool. So it was in collaboration with the movie to advertise the movie. And the really cool uh, little bit of analytics I'd like to share is in the first week of us releasing the video and the first week of the movie being in theaters, the movie grossed 140 million and our video did 10 million views. Now, if you divide that 140 million by an average ticket price of about $11, you're looking at about 14 million views. So the fact that our YouTube video almost got the same number of views as a Hollywood movie in the same week that it was released is pretty mind boggling and really shows the potential of the platform for this kind of collaboration and um, for really capitalizing on movie IP. It is. It's super smart on their part and unbelievable. I mean, it's so accessible. You can just go on YouTube and it serves you exactly what you want to see. It's free. It's quick. You can do it from your phone. Uh, so mm -hmm. I think in the future, you know, media is heading this way and you're <laughs> seemed like really well positioned to do very well. You shared with me another analytic that I would love for you to talk about a little. And I think that was total watch time on your channel. Oh, you yeah. Going nuts over this at dinner. What was the total watch time on your channel as of now? Uh, let me let me just pull up my analytics real quick. Um, yes. It's a very big number, but I want to I want to make sure it's uh, accurate. Let's see. All right. So we've accumulated 1.7 billion views on YouTube. So that's enough for every person on the planet to have watched at least two of my videos, maybe two and a half. <laughs> Pretty cool. But the crazy number here is watch time. So YouTube does actually calculate um, how much time is actually spent watching your videos. So 1.7 billion views is a big number, but it doesn't mean they are 1.7 billion 100% views. So watch time is the true metric that you know people actually spent watching it. So that number is 113.7 million hours. Okay. So let me just do some quick math. 113.7 million hours. So if we divide that by 24, we're looking at 4.73 million days. If we divide that by um, 365 days per year, we're looking at 12,979 years. Human civilization has spent 12,979 years watching me do engineering projects on YouTube. How does that make you feel? That's nuts. <laughs> the thing with becoming a YouTuber is you become pretty, pretty numb to the numbers. You always just want the numbers to be bigger. But when you really sit back and look at those and realize like, I have outlived myself like on a factor that wasn't even possible before the internet. If you think about any, any of the most famous people in history, and you think about how many people actually saw them in person or saw something that they did, it's a tiny, tiny number, but there are these huge historical figures. Now that we have the internet and the ability to reach literally the entire world, the, the exposure is, is insane. And I like to think about, I don't really know what my grandparents were like. And I feel like this is the case for, for a lot of people our age, but especially for me, if I ever have kids or grandkids, they can literally watch my entire progression through youth on YouTube and know exactly what I was like, which I think is, is absolutely crazy. 
And that's a really cool, it's a really cool function of having phones in our pocket that can take, take content wherever we are, because back then you, you get a few photos a year of your grandparents and that that's it. You'd have to, you'd have to make up the rest. So it's, it's pretty mind boggling. And yeah, it's a great way to look at it. You're immortalized in a lot of ways, and especially over the course of 17 years. And imagine if you continue for another 17 years, your grandkids get to watch you grow up and people will be watching your videos potentially long after you're dead, which is even more mind boggling. They might look at the technology you're creating and be like, wow, look at that ancient piece of lightsaber yep. and iron. Man. No, it's crazy. Uh, but it's speaking of that, actually, I've, I've received a few comments over the years that are just fun. It's people who actually subscribed to my channel back when I was doing backflip and parkour videos. And somehow they've stumbled upon the channel and been like, what is what's this channel? And they look back and they realize who I was and they, they see that jump from Oh, wow, this guy taught me how to do a backflip and now he's building robots and stuff like what happened? And it's just kind of crazy to think that like, yeah, for doing it for 17 years, like there are people who have been following me for that long, which is just it's crazy. Absolutely nuts. I agree with you. Now, what do you think about another? Which actually comes to a very interesting um, point on YouTube yes. that um, probably doesn't get talked about much. The um the challenge with being on youtube for so long is you forget the technical term but basically your audience ages out so let's say my my videos are most popular with like teenagers to early 20s right as soon as those fans even if they were pretty diehard fans life changes and suddenly they're not really in the target bracket anymore which means they kind of stop watching and then as a youtuber you either maintain your focus on this audience that worked or you try and grow with your audience to kind of maximize longevity with your, your current audience. And it's a really interesting question that no one thinks about when they first start YouTube. Like it's just not the top of anyone's mind, but it's the reality of um, being a channel on YouTube for so long. Yeah, that's a really good point that I never thought about either. You've got 14 million followers, say they're between the ages of 15 and 25. 10 years from now, they might not be interested in Marvel Comics. And neither right. might you be interested in those things where you're going to keep creating content about Marvel. You're going to be some 60-year-old guy making Iron Man costumes. I mean, maybe. I think it'd be still pretty cool. <laughs> uh, but you know, how do you plan on addressing that? What do you plan on doing? Honestly, I haven't really planned on addressing it at all. You know, it's kind of more of just... It is what it is. And ultimately, yeah. I want to keep doing what I'm interested in. I, I don't want to cater to a specific audience. So for all I know, my, my content has obviously changed over the years. And it's hard when you're in it to really see that change, short of being someone who like jumps from day one video to day 1000, you know, so it's it's one of those things that you could, you could try and plan for and aim to, to do something about, but there's, there's no guarantee really. And I don't want this to turn into a strictly money-making business idea where it's just like, okay, well, this is the audience that I can make the most. I'm, I'm not really interested in that. I'm, I'm interested in building up this company, um, Herc. Well, the company's called Hacksmith Engineering, Hacksmith Industries. The um, building that we're in right now is called Herc, Hacksmith Engineering Research Campus. And my grand vision for this place, we've got about 18 acres and 15,000 square feet of 
uh, building right now, but I want to turn this into basically the ultimate skunk works where you can build pretty well anything you can think of. We have all the, the tools, materials, and resources to change any idea to reality. And YouTube's always kind of been more of like a, a, a stepping stone for that. I don't ever plan on stopping YouTube, but I hope to see the day when Hacks with Industries become, say, a, a billion dollar company, not unlike Stark Industries in the Marvel comics. And the YouTube is just a way that our audience and our customers can actually see behind the veil. If you think about the archetype of any superhero CEO in any of the comics, there's always such great visibility and they're so, so eccentric. When we think about that in real life, there's not actually that many names that pop up other than say Elon Musk, maybe Richard Branson. But even with Elon being on Twitter, you're just seeing his random thoughts in 140 characters or less. You're still not really, you're not behind the curtain. Whereas if you had a dedicated YouTube channel that kind of shows what your business does from the inside, I think that's a really cool future for businesses. That's a lot more freaking transparent than any of the faceless corporations out there. So that's kind of more of my long-term plan for, for this company and what I want to do with YouTube. That sounds like a really cool place to go into work every day. And I've seen, you know, you're, you're recognized in public. YouTube is the number one most desired job right now amongst, amongst kids. It all sounds like a dream. Before we get into some specific YouTube strategy, I'd love to pick your mind about some of the drawbacks to being a, a YouTube celebrity and doing what you do. Is there ever any hard times, hard days, and tough things to think about, tough decisions to make? Always. <laughs> um, I'd say... There's a, there's a really good analogy for the issue with YouTube or basically any e-commerce. For normal jobs, you're looking at nine to five plus maybe some overtime. That's when the, the world operates. With YouTube, the world operates 24-7. You've got people watching your videos in Australia. You've got people watching your videos here. You've got them watching all over the world. So it kind of comes with this, oh, I could be working still. I could still be making more content because the the appetite for that content um is pretty well unlimited it's not it's not restricted to the nine to five like a normal job so it's very easy to get kind of caught up in that and being like i could be doing more i could be doing more i could be doing more and that's a that's an issue that all youtubers face on some level unless you're really good at setting some boundaries for how you decide to do youtube um, the other big, um, issue or challenge I'd say with YouTube is YouTube is YouTube because of the, you, me, I've built up an audience. When you want to transition from being a solo YouTuber to having a team, having different hosts in the videos, having all these different things, it's pretty complicated because the reason you had success in the beginning was because of you. Now you're trying to recreate that success with other people, which can work and it can also not work. So there's, I've, I've personally struggled quite a bit with building up this business and this team without feeling like I'm the linchpin of it all. And the goal obviously is to be free of that, where the business and YouTube can continue to go off and create, and I can have the freedom to pursue what I'm most passionate about instead of having to make content 
um, in order to pay for the company to exist. You know what I mean? Right. Yes. Uh, how do you plan on addressing that? I mean, is there a way to remove yourself? Have you seen it done successfully where a YouTuber who is a famous personal brand like yourself or Mr. Beast stepping back from their videos and not being the face and remaining successful? Yeah, it's the, uh, it's the million dollar question. And there are not many, any um, cases that I'm fully aware of. You can offload the work by growing a team around you that assists you. Um, but I can't really think of any examples where a solo YouTuber has basically trans transitioned the channel to another host. The key that say Mr. Beast does and other, other big creators like say Dude Perfect is they actually started with like a big group of people. Yeah. Like Dude Perfect's a great example of it's, it's five guys. Um, and they've built this multimedia empire. And it's definitely, I'm a little envious of having like, having it built on multiple people from the start versus trying to evolve to that model. And that's something we're actively trying to do. We do have other hosts who host videos and they usually do pretty good, but not always as good as the videos I do. It's a question of, can we transition our audience to expecting to see less of me, um, but still seeing my, my impact on the business? and whether I can get to the point where I just cameo in my own videos. Is that possible? We're still not sure, we're still experimenting, but that is kind of the hope. Definitely the golden question, uh, and we're, I'll watch the videos regardless. I'd love to get into some of the, the questions that the people need to hear from the YouTube star. So James, give me the golden recipe for getting 14 million followers on YouTube. What do you do? Um, you're definitely going to have to pick a niche that isn't always already saturated, or if it is saturated, you'd better be bringing something new to the table. The issue with YouTube being a number one job, um, for, for children today is they see the channels that they'd like to do. They see gamers just gaming all day and having millions of followers. And it's like, why can't I do that? Well, that's a very, very, very saturated field. So for you to become popular in that field, that's going to take a whole nother level of some kind of competitive advantage that you would have over those other channels. I'm not saying it's not possible, but it's going to be an uphill battle. Whereas if you find something that you're passionate about that has basically an untapped niche on YouTube, that's your best bet of, of having success and growing your channel. If you do just want to be the next PewDiePie or even Mr. Beast, good luck. It's not going to work. <laughs> so you really do need to find that niche. And, and the other important part is you have to be passionate about it. The whole point of YouTube is you're doing something you're passionate about. If you're, if you're approaching this like a business, I just want to make lots of money on YouTube. I'm going to pick the most lucrative thing I can do. You're probably not going to go that far. That's a good point. So niche is very important. Yeah. Say you've got a good niche, engineering, Marvel, obviously an awesome niche, high barrier to entry. There's not a lot of people doing it. Now you've got a niche. Now what? What is the next piece of the puzzle to succeeding at YouTube? Is it thumbnails? Is it title structure? What, what, what do you think it is? Um, those are obviously both very important things, um, but I'd say the number one most important thing for literally any channel is good storytelling. Mm. If you are good storytelling, you can succeed in whatever niche you're in. If you're not good at storytelling, even if you have this untapped niche, why are people going to watch? Storytelling is what draws everyone to media. 
it's the reason the MCU became as big as it was because people got invested in the story. They got invested in the characters. And that's basically what you want to do on YouTube as well. You want your audience to be invested in you and what you do. So you need to be passionate about that because if you're not, and you're not able to tell a good story about the journey, then it's going to be really hard to succeed. So I'll, I'll share a little anecdote about where we kind of faltered on that path. When I first started doing this channel, I was doing it out of my garage, which is very relatable. Every, every kid watching the videos probably has their dad's garage and tools they've seen before, right? So when you see me making stuff from fiction into reality in a garage that you could imagine you have a garage. Now I've added this whole level of relatability. When we did our first expansion and we moved to a facility 10 times the size, we kind of became a bit more uh, corporate. Suddenly we're looking more like a high-tech facility, which is kind of my, my end goal for the business, but we're losing that relatability that we had in the garage. And I often wonder if, I should have done things differently. Should I have still expanded to the new building, but really set that up as the new business, the skunk works thing, and then continued making videos in the garage to maintain that relatability. And unless I had a magic wand, I have no way of knowing which path led to more or would lead to more success or less success. So yeah, it's an interesting thing to think about is like, how can you maintain that, that level of relatability with your audience? Because ultimately that's what's going to keep you connected. But on the other hand, what I really like about what we did do is you can actually go back and see the growth of Hacksmith Industries as a whole over the past almost 10 years of video. Name one company that you could see that for. If Hacksmith Industries continues to grow, becomes a $100 million company, a billion dollar company, being able to actually see that journey. Most companies, they get successful enough and big enough that Hollywood then makes a movie about the origin story. Right. But for me, the origin story is already on YouTube. It's already public. You can already follow along. And while that might not be relatable to 99% of the people because not everyone's built a big company, it's still a really fascinating storytelling perspective of being able to see this growth, this journey. So we do see lots of comments of people being like, it's amazing to see how far you've gone. Such a good point. Storytelling might have been the best answer you could have given. I think it's super underplayed. And I think it's one of the things that people really don't know how to get better at. It's one thing that I've started looking into recently. And you see the power of the evolution, the picture of Jeff Bezos in his garage with the Amazon written on that paper. That's one of the most shared images of all time. And if more people had you know, evolution stories like that, progress stories like that, I'd be so interested to see Apple documenting every step of their journey. Uh, so James, I guess que follow-up question to the storytelling is how do you get better at storytelling? Is this something that you had to learn? Is this something you studied? Because I do think it's super underrated. Yeah. Um, the first I want to share an anecdote about um, your uh, comment about Jeff Bezos in the garage. Yeah, please. So you can find the photo of the Amazon garage, the Apple garage, the Mattel garage and all this. And they're all pretty well single car garages. Um, I took a black and white picture of my garage. My garage is pretty big. It's actually 1300 square feet. It's got a 14 foot garage door on the front. It is giant compared to those garages. So I like to think about the future where it's just like, well, we already started in a bigger garage, which means we could eventually become bigger than any one of those companies. Whether or not it's going to happen, it's just kind of a fun little, like, it's a neat little comparison picture. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. But yeah, as far as 
All right, Sorry, let's, jump into some, let, let's jump into some rapid fire for for YouTube <laughs> right. growth strategies. Is that cool? You you down for a little sure. bit of run and gun YouTube strategy time? Let's do it. All right. I'd like to hear your thoughts on a few different aspects of YouTube channel growth, posting videos, different misconceptions uh, that people might have about YouTube channel growth. Uh, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on them. Uh, let's start with thumbnails. Is there a specific framework that you have? How important are the thumbnails? Is there a, a recipe that people can follow to get increased click-through rates on their thumbnails? Thumbnails are definitely super, super important. You're basically given the chance to sell your video in a single picture. So you know how they say a picture tells a thousand words. You need to make sure your picture tells the viewer what's in the video and why they should watch it. So we definitely put a lot of emphasis on thumbnail design and we spend a lot of time. If you look on the extreme side of things, Mr. Beast spends upwards of $50,000 or more per thumbnail, just to make the thumbnail. And um, when, I, when I did a collab with him, I actually got to see the, uh, the Slack channel where they, they show drafts of the thumbnails. And I'm talking like literally hundreds of thumbnails all the same thumbnail with just tiny little changes. And they've gotten so, so laser focused on these tiny details that people probably won't even ever notice, but maybe they notice subconsciously. I think that's the extreme side of things. I don't think you need to spend that much time or money on thumbnails, but that just goes to show how important Mr. Beast thinks thumbnails are, which is a good metric for just how important thumbnails are. Keeping them simple, bright, colorful, trying to stick with the same color palette so you're not just crazy because the less colors you have, the more vibrant or more pictures going to pop out compared to other um, thumbnails as you're browsing YouTube. And then the other big thing is basically the thumbnail is the first thing a, a viewer will see. So the thumbnail needs to catch your attention. Then if it caught your attention, maybe they're going to read the, the title. So you want to make sure the title either adds to the thumbnail or like works with the thumbnail in some way. The issue is even if you make the perfect thumbnail, sometimes it still doesn't work. Sometimes maybe your channel's not in the right spot. Who knows? But it is definitely an important thing to think about. Do you use your face on every thumbnail? And obviously you're doing really cool stuff. You're building lightsabers, Iron Man suits. So showing that stuff in the thumbnail is great. But what about for people who are just educating? Or making video game videos. Uh, what is there a, a thumbnail structure they should have? Should they put words in the thumbnail? Um, for the most part, um, seeing your face is good and being animated, being high energy. I mean, heck, sometimes, sometimes I will make my eyes slightly bigger in the thumbnail, and that's something that lots of lots of channels do. And you can love it or you can hate it, but it can work. So there's, there's, it's, it's interesting. There's fans who pick out these things. It's like, oh, I noticed you did this in the thumbnail. That's weird. I'm like, yeah, it is weird, but it worked, didn't it? Right. The game is get your attention. It looks like in all of Mr. Beast, his like mouth is open. He always looks shocked or surprised. Yeah. The, so yeah. the crazy thing with Mr. Beast is they found a few expressions that work. And if you actually look through his videos, a lot of the face shots are the same. It's not even a new picture. They tested his facial expressions. I mean, I guess I'm not yeah. surprised after what you just said, <laughs> but wow. Uh, so definitely something cool to think about there. And you mentioned, cool, you got their attention. The thumbnail's good. Now they're going to read the title. Are there any words or lengths for a title to, to get the most clicks or generate the most views? Do you follow any structure? Um, typically, we'll try and ask a question because asking a question is a good way to 
inspire thought. And if you've managed to get the, the viewer to think a bit about your video, now you're much more likely for them to click on your video. Because like you said, like YouTube, everyone's on YouTube now. The competition for the competition for eyeballs on YouTube is crazy. So you do need to stand out. And then, then your video also needs to be good. Because the worst thing you can do is put all your time and effort into making a thumbnail that's essentially clickbait. And then you get that click, but then they start watching your video and they're like, what the crap is this? Now you've just, you've tanked the performance of the video and you've lost trust with your audience. So clickbait's an interesting topic because you can have good clickbait and you can have bad clickbait. And there is a differentiating factor there where the clickbait is still part of the truth, maybe it's a little exaggerated, but it's not an outright lie. If you're, if you're doing clickbait as an outright lie, and this would have been like the early days of YouTube, people would put thumbnails of girls in bikinis for their video. So you can click on that video and then surprise, there's no girl in a bikini in the video. That's obvious clickbait. Whereas YouTube now has matured so much as a platform, you cannot, you could not do that and succeed. Right, because people are going to click on it. The watch time is going to be so small and YouTube's going to sh stop showing that video. Is that correct? Exactly. Very good. So bait and switch is bad. Clickbait is good, but you have to deliver on your promise. Exactly. It's funny. Mm -hmm. I, I subscribe to some like financial YouTubers. So stay up to date on the market. And there's specific ones where every video is market is crashing, urgent. Watch this now. And yep. you, you see these over and over again and you click on them and little be little behold the market's not crashing just a, a small update and you eventually stop clicking or you unsubscribe to that person so if you, uh, I, I agree with you you know if you're going to use words like that you really have to deliver on your promise if you do it too much i'm out of there and i'm sure a lot of people agree a uh, couple other aspects to a video that i'd like to discuss very very briefly one is hashtags or tags on youtube do those matter at all what do you do for tags we still do tags and i've always done tags but the YouTube algorithm is so sophisticated anyways. You have the full transcript of the video. YouTube knows what's in the video. It doesn't need your tags. So as far as I know, Mr. Beast doesn't even put tags on his videos. So, I mean, it kind of makes sense. Again, like YouTube has the transcript of your video. YouTube knows exactly what's in your video, which means anyone can search for anything that's in your video and maybe your video is going to show up. So. I think tags are probably on their way out. They're just there still because they were there in the beginning. And in the beginning, they were important, they were used, but now I don't think they have much of an impact. We still do it kind of out of fear of, oh, well, maybe, maybe it does still do something, but we don't put nearly as much emphasis on it anymore. What about description? I know that's another place where YouTube SEO might play a part. Do you focus at all on what you put in the YouTube description? Not overly. Again, when you think about the YouTube algorithm um, maturing, it knows what your video is. And that's how it shares it with other people. That's how the algorithm takes it and rolls. So short of the title and thumbnail, which is what you can directly influence what your, at, your audience clicks on, everything else from the algorithm's perspective it already has all the info. 
That's good to know. And I, I agree. And every time I upload a YouTube video, and you can go on YouTube videos right now, and they're already transcribed to the right. You just have to like, click on transcript. So that's, that's yep. very cool and an, and an interesting thought. Do you use any tools to help with your YouTube channel? There's TubeBuddy, there's vidIQ. Do you utilize any of these things? I've used both of those um, sparingly. They can help a little bit, but again, I think those tools really shined earlier when say keywords were more important. Um, the one feature we sometimes use with TubeBuddy is the thumbnail AB comparison, which is a very important tool. It's something that YouTube should already have built in. And that's, that's my biggest gripe is that YouTube has been promising us this feature for ever, and they still haven't added it. The idea of being able to make multiple thumbnails and actually be able to see, oh, this thumbnail is better than this thumbnail. It has better click through rate. So TubeBuddy kind of brute forces it. It will literally, it, you give it access to your YouTube account and it will upload a new thumbnail, keep track of the analytics, change it, keep track of the analytics, keep doing that back and forth. And then it physically gives you a report after a week of which thumbnail did better. Um, we've never had like a night and day difference using that tool um, because one of the issues is you're reaching different audience each time, right? right. And that's going to be the issue wherever. But if YouTube, if the algorithm got so smart that it tell also you as a viewer what you're into, maybe it shows you um, thumbnail A versus it showing you thumbnail B because YouTube has that information on the audience, they might be able to actually cater the thumbnail towards the audience that that would like the thumbnail. Um, it's kind of complicated. I know thumbnail AB testing is built into Facebook or Meta. Um, we don't use Facebook too much, but it's just, it's already there, which is kind of nice. And this isn't a new thing for Google. When you're using Google ads, you're constantly doing either thumbnail AB testing or um, the, the copy testing of like which ad performed better and Google's constantly doing that to try and maximize your ad performance. Why couldn't Google do that for us on YouTube? Why doesn't get Google let us upload thumbnails for YouTube shorts? That's, that's another big question. Uh, and with that, yeah, so we're, that's almost a question of like trying to get away from this, away from the game of let's say clickbait, right? Uh, so you think it's strategic. You think they're not letting us upload thumbnails for YouTube shorts on purpose. So you don't try and bait the click. It, it, it means you have to actually use something from the video, which is honestly how YouTube started. I don't think you couldn't, you couldn't upload YouTube thumbnails back in 2006. You could pick a frame from your video. Very interesting. That's so actually coming full circle, which is pretty crazy. <laughs> Uh, are you guys doing YouTube shorts and are you doing dedicated ones or are you guys ripping uh, segments out of your long form videos? How are shorts working for you guys? Uh, a bit of both. We didn't like shorts when they first came to the platform. It felt like a race to the bottom competing with TikTok because um, a lot of short form content is mindless garbage. That's probably just eroding society as we know it. So <laughs> I'm not too crazy about short form content at all. And the issue when YouTube came in with it was now you're trying to, now you're getting rid of people who were watching your long form content to watch this short form content, which you can't even make nearly the same um, revenue off of. So we were resistant. YouTube actually paid us a bunch of money to make shorts. And they did that with a lot of creators to try and get people actually creating shorts. And it was only just this spring 
that YouTube actually added revenue sharing for shorts. And let me tell you, it's crap. Um, if you get a hundred million views on a short, it's maybe worth a hundred thousand views of a long form video. Now that's not even wow. tenfold. That's not even a hundred. That's a thousand fold difference. It's, it's pretty pathetic. That being said, the shorts platform is now very valuable in reaching a new audience. So I'll give you a, an example of numbers. We ripped a 15 second clip from one of my videos. It was on self-healing Wolverine claws. And for whatever reason, the algorithm picked that up. And that video has 130 million views now on shorts. It made us about a thousand dollars in ad revenue. So basically nothing, yeah. but this is the valuable part. It added 300,000 new subscribers to our YouTube channel. From one short video. From one short. That's still, That's when you think about the numbers, it's, it's a pretty tiny percentage, like 130 million views only attracted 300,000 new people. But 300,000 is still a big number. That's nothing to scoff at. So we see shorts now as a way of showing off the best parts of our long form content and hopefully acquiring more subscribers who will hopefully watch the videos that can actually uh, fund the channel. <laughs> no, that's a good point. Uh, and are, are you also posting those shorts on Instagram and on TikTok and other short platforms? Uh, yeah, so we've, we've recently, I, I gave one of our editors basically free reign of the TikTok account and it's actually been going pretty well. They've managed to grow um, the following from about half a million to 1.6 million in the past six months, six months. And, um, we've actually started being able to do, uh, sponsorships on short form content. And I think that's where the real money lies for this potential of the short form content. You're never going to make money off of the ad revenue on short form content. But right. if you're able to reach this many eyeballs, that's stuff that brands pay for. And the beauty is it's typically easier content than making a full video. So if we're able to produce um, sponsored shorts, that's a whole new revenue stream that's opened up for us that doesn't really impact or affect our main channel videos. And I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there's a few different types of people out there, you know, some who exclusively use TikTok, some who aren't Instagram, some just watch long form on YouTube, and some might just watch short form on YouTube. And if you want yep. the best chances of reaching the most people, got to be everywhere. And it's the same content that you're just reusing. So just if, if you're not, I think you'd be making a big mistake. So I'm, uh, it sounds like you are and it sounds like that would be your, your advice to other creators. Definitely. Cool. Uh, wrapping up here, James, I'd like to hear who is your favorite YouTube? You've been doing this for a long time. I'm sure you've had role <laughs> models that you've looked up to over the years. Uh, who have those people been and why? Um, my first role model. Um... He's not around anymore, unfortunately. Uh, Grant Thompson, the king of random. Um, I basically had been following his channel since pretty much when I when I started trying to do it um, in earnest, which is back in 2012. And I saw Grant grow his channel from 100,000 subscribers to 10 million subscribers. Um, and that was really what gave me the confidence and the realization that like this, Hey, this is possible. And the really neat thing with that was years later, well, two, two funny things. One, I remember reaching out to him way back in 2012, basically, can I have a collab? 
because that's whatever YouTuber thinks will grow their channel. It's not. Yeah. And he, he gave some very valuable advice about focus on the content. Um, when you're making good content, you won't have to ask. And that really stuck with me. And I, I continued focusing on that. And it came full circle because by the time I had a million or two million subscribers, he was actually following my channel and he wanted to meet me. It, it flipped. And that was pretty, that was pretty huge for me because it was, it was someone I had looked up to. And suddenly I was doing something cool enough that he thought it was cool and he wanted to come visit. And unfortunately he passed away a few years ago now in a uh, paragliding accident. And, um, that, that was pretty hard on me because, um, he was truly one of the first and only real mentors on YouTube I had. And actually this answers one of your earlier questions. He did actually successfully transition from being the king of random to being behind the scenes and having another host. And he's actually probably one of the only examples that I can think of. Um, and really he, he essentially retired early and started pursuing all his passions after grinding on YouTube for so long. Um, unfortunately, one of those passions paragliding resulted in, in his death. Now, I'm super sorry to hear that. Sounds like a, an amazing guy. Uh, and, uh, and a great role model. Thank you for sharing that, James. Now, I will let you go. I've had you here for about an hour. Before I do, if you're listening to this, you need to go subscribe to Hacksmith. I'm sure you don't, you won't even see the impact of a few thousand more, more subscribers here, but definitely go check him out. This isn't just some creator or entrepreneur here sharing some tips. He's super entertaining and educational. But James, is there anything that we can do or I can do to support you and your journey to turn Herc into that billion dollar company? Uh, sure. So one of, one of our side businesses is uh, hacksmith.store. So I've, I've really discovered that I, I love actually developing products. So for example, one of our new products is a mini Sabre Gen 2. And this thing, it's hard to see, but like, oh, there you go. Yeah, red flame, really cool. Um, we just launched pre-orders for these last month and they've been a smashing success and it's been really cool because it's the realization that if we grow Hacksmith.store, it could become the, the main revenue driver to enable all this, to enable Herc. So, uh, if you want to check out Hacksmith.store, we've got lots of awesome, awesome products there. Um, yeah. Appreciate it, brother. I'm on the site now. It looks like you're almost at that million dollar goal. So congratulations on that. Thank you. And uh, thank you, James, for coming and joining me today. Uh, I know you're a busy guy. Uh, and if you're listening to this, go shoot James a thank you. Uh, I appreciate you coming, brother. And I'm excited to, to do another mastermind with you soon. Definitely. That was awesome. Thanks for having me.